Jeremiah chapter 10. Our focus this morning will be on verses 10, uh, chapter 10, verses 17 through 25. I'll be reading verses 11 through 25. Jeremiah chapter 10, 11 through 25. Thus you shall say to them, The gods who did not make the heavens and the earth shall perish from the earth and from under the heavens. It is He who made the earth by His power, who established the world by His wisdom, and by His understanding stretched out the heavens. When He utters His voice, there is a tumult of waters in the heavens, and He makes the mist rise from the ends of the earth. He makes lightning for the rain, and He brings forth the wind from His storehouses. Every man is stupid and without knowledge. Every goldsmith is put to shame by his idols, for his images are false and there is no breath in them. They are worthless, a work of delusion. At the time of their punishment, they shall perish. Not like these is he who is the portion of Jacob, for he is the one who formed all things. And Israel is the tribe of his inheritance. Yahweh of hosts is His name. Gather up your bundle from the ground, O you who dwell under siege. For thus says Yahweh, Behold, I am slinging out the inhabitants of the land at this time and will bring distress on them that they may feel it. Woe is me because of my hurt. My wound is grievous. But I said, truly this is an affliction and I must bear it. My tent is destroyed and all my cords are broken. My children have gone from me and they are not. There is no one to spread my tent again and to set up my curtains. For the shepherds are stupid. Do not inquire of Yahweh, therefore they have not prospered and all their flock is scattered. A voice, a rumor, behold it comes, a great commotion out of the north country to make the cities of Judah a desolation, a lair of jackals. I know, O Yahweh, the way of man is not in himself, that it is not in man who walks to direct his steps. Correct me, O Yahweh, but in justice, let not, your anger, not in your anger, lest you bring me to nothing. Pour out your wrath on the nations that know you not, and on the peoples who, that call not on your name. For they have devoured Jacob. They have devoured him and consumed him and have laid waste his habitation. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, grant us now an understanding of the horrors of your judgment, so that we might sing with joy 
over our deliverance. And that we might weep for those who will suffer it. Grant us grace to receive your chastisement in a righteous way as we see Jeremiah does here. And turn our hearts freshly to Christ who suffered wounds as we never will. Because by His stripes we've been healed. In the name of Christ we pray, Amen. In the collection of miscellaneous prophecies that runs from chapter 8 and verse 4 to chapter 10 and verse 25, the verses we had just previously studied, verses 1 through 16 of chapter 10, came like a cool, refreshing breeze on a blistering day. Yahweh there, their covenant Lord, had told them not to learn the ways of the nations or be fearful, dismayed as they were. He reminds them of the vanity of the idols of the pagans and the glory of Yahweh who is their Redeemer. He reminds them in contrast to these worthless idols, He is their portion. And they are His. But now, with this closing portion of this section, we return to the blistering, stifling deadness of the impending day of scorching judgment. Derek Kidner captures the contrast. Suddenly there is the sheer drop from the pinnacle to the depths, from the thought of Israel as God's own treasure to the pathetic sight of her as a refugee leaving the ruins for the road. Our section has three parts to it. First, there's this exhortation for those who dwell under siege to pack up their bags and prepare for exile, verses 17 through 18. Then there's the lamentation, verses 19 through 20, for the destruction and the desolation that are left behind. And then finally, the petition that the sovereign God would not in anger utterly destroy them, but that His wrath would be directed towards the nations that don't call on His name, verses 23 through 25. So first, the exhortation from God. Those under siege are to gather up their bundle and prepare to hit the road. This is a deflating Word. These are persons who have fled to the city hoping for refuge, and God's word to them is pack up. Preparations do not mean arming themselves, they're to put down their sword and gather up their bundle. They're not to put on armor in hopes of withstanding attack. They are to put on the garments of those who have been conquered and prepare for a long journey. This would have been a very vivid image for the ancient audience. There are Assyrian bas-reliefs 
of their conquered foes with a sack over their shoulders being driven into places they have not known. Those who've hoped for refuge in the city of David, where Yahweh dwells in the midst of His people, are told by Yahweh, pack up. The reasons given are twofold. Verse 18, first, they're to do this because for, thus says Yahweh, behold, I am slinging out the inhabitants of the land at this time. The slinging spoken of here is exactly that with which David slew the giant. He's going to hurl them out of the land. The violence of this image is captured by that word of judgment that Yahweh spoke to Shebna, the secretary of King Hezekiah. Isaiah 22, Behold, Yahweh will hurl you away violently, O strong man. He will seize firm hold on you and whirl you around and around and throw you like a ball into a wide land. Later, Jeremiah will expand on this as Yahweh tells him in chapter 16, verse 13, Therefore, I will hurl you out of this land into a land that neither you nor your fathers have known, and there you shall serve other gods day and night, for I will show you no favor. The second there to pack up, because God will bring distress on them, verse 17. The latter part of this verse is really hard to get at. It's vague. The ESV has that they may fill it. I think the better translation is represented by the New American Standard. He will cause them distress that they may be found. I believe the idea of the text is that He will cause them such distress. He will put such pressure on them that their refuge proves of no value. They're found. He he pushes such that they come out of the city. Learn this. If you disobey God's commands of life, you are certain to hear such commands of death. If you refuse to walk in His ways, He will make you walk to the place of judgment. Whenever our first parents ate the forbidden fruit, they were driven out of the garden. Whenever Israel breaks covenant. He drives them out of the land. And now He commands His churches to remove the old leaven that the the lump might be new, purging the evil from among us. And if we do not, the warnings of such as He gave the church at Ephesus, I think, stand against us. That if we forget our first love, He will remove the lampstand from among us. Jesus will one day command those who feign to know Him, depart from me, I never knew you, you workers of lawlessness. One day, the Lord God Almighty will press this earth such that the wicked are found. They will find no refuge. They will cry out to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of Him, 
who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, but there will be no escape, there will be no refuge, they will be found. Those who have refused to obey will hear him say, Depart from me, you cursed, into eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. They will hear that command, and there will be no disobedience. God will press the wicked out of this earth and sling them into the eternal hell, and they will have no part in creation made new. Sinner, there is no hope in your rebellion for refuge from God. You cannot remain in your rebellion and in that place hope for any refuge. You cannot run from obedience to the Sovereign One and hope to find any place to ignore His command of judgment on your soul. If you refuse to repent, prepare for exiles and know you can pack no bags. You cannot take one little precious thing with you. It will be an eternal exile away from His beauty and goodness and truth to know only His wrath and judgment eternally. So it's no surprise then to find following such an exhortation, lamentation, verses 19 through 22. But what is a bit puzzling is who is lamenting? A people should lament, but we find only a person does lament. Woe is me because of my heart, heart, my, because of my hurt. Once again, we find that the people should lament, but Jeremiah is. He is He's lamenting for the people, but he's also lamenting as the people. He's an example of how they should respond to Yahweh's judgment. You remember earlier in chapter 8 and verse 21, he said, For the wound of the daughter of my people is my heart wounded. I mourn and dismay has taken hold of me. So the wound is Judah's, but the cry is Jeremiah's. He does not share in their rebellion, but he does share in their misery. He cries out, as they should. He cries out for them. Jura's attitude in this is not one of simple resignation, resolve, whenever he says, but I said, truly, this is an affliction and I must bear it. This is not just toughness. Jeremiah recognizes there is a mustness to this judgment that's coming on them. I think what he's saying is he recognizes there's a righteousness, there's a justness, there's a, there's a mustness to the situation. And as we progress along, we'll see not only more clearly the reason why this affliction must be, uh, we'll see not only, excuse me, how grievous this wound is, but why this affliction must be. Jeremiah is speaking, he's lamenting for the people as they should, and that he's doing so on behalf of the people becomes clear In the following verses, Jeremiah 16, he's commanded not to take a wife or have children. But he says, my tent is destroyed, all my cords are broken, my children have gone from me. Jeremiah is here lamenting as though he is every man in Jerusalem. He's lamenting as they should. 
His habitation is destroyed. His heritage is cut off. He's not simply removed from the land. He has no hope of anyone carrying on his name in the land if there ever is a return from exile. He's not only without a tent, he's without any children to ever bring a tent back to the land that was promised to the children of Abraham. In the garden... Man was commanded to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. That command was repeated after the flood. And as Israel comes into the promised land, she's to be fruitful, multiply, and fill that. And it's to be this echo of Eden, this anticipation of creation made new. And now this is being undone. God warned them of this consequence in Deuteronomy 28. Whereas you were as numerous as the stars of heaven, you shall be left few in number. Because you did not obey the voice of Yahweh your God, as Yahweh took delight in doing you good, multiplying you, so Yahweh will take delight and bring ruin upon you and destroying you, and you shall be plucked off the land that you are entering to take possession of it. The reason this has come to be, the reason this must be, is because, verse 21, the shepherds are stupid. They do not inquire of Yahweh. Because they do not inquire of the living God of all wisdom, but of deadwood idols, they are foolish. Chapter 10, verse 8, they are both stupid and foolish. The instruction of idols is but wood. Folly is acting as though God were not. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are They're seeking instruction from those things which are not God. Ignoring the true and living God. You cannot ignore gravity without consequence. How much more can you ignore the God who holds all things together? In hope of escaping the consequences. Ignore the Creator and you will lose all. All creation. No habitation, no heritage in the new heaven and the new earth. Because the shepherds are stupid and don't inquire of Yahweh, they don't prosper. Their flock is scattered, verse 21. Stupid shepherds have scattered sheep. Under godly kings, we see the nation prospered again and again in various ways. The sheep are blessed. Here, they're scattered. They're scattered because a great commotion comes out of the north to make the cities of Judah a desolation, verse 22. This word for commotion here means rumbling, a quaking. It's the word the Hebrew would use for an earthquake. Remember that pot that we saw precariously tipped away from the north towards the south, ready to spill out? Well, it's fell now with a thud, and the earth quakes, and the waters of God's judgment are ready to wash over Judah and leave her a wilderness, a layer of jackals, a desolation. As goes the king, so goes the kingdom. And our hope is this, though. That though whenever the good shepherd, the great shepherd, was struck, the sheep scattered. He promised his sheep will hear his voice. And there will be one flock and one shepherd. He promised us saying no one takes his life, but that he gives it and he takes it back up again. As the dawn of new creation and all who are his sheep 
He will bring with them, bring with him there. So saints, let us lament. Let us lament the plethora of churches that are led by stupid shepherds who do not inquire of Yahweh and who are so perverting the gospel of Christ that many have no heritage or habitation in creation to come. One pastor has said that you win them to what you win them with. Stupid shepherds using worldly wisdom are filling buildings not simply by preaching the gospel of Christ, but by appealing to the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. So let us lament. And let us admit that any chastisement that comes upon such is a must. He's righteous and just to do so. Jeremiah's cry of lament gives way to this humble and earnest petition in verses 23 through 25. And Jeremiah prefaces it all with a profession. He confesses that man is not Lord, not even over his own life. I know, O Yahweh, that the way of man is not in himself, that it is not in man who walks to direct his steps. His profession here is a staple of wisdom literature. Psalm 37, 23. The steps of a man are established by Yahweh when he delights in his way. Proverbs 69, the heart of man plans his way, but Yahweh establishes his steps. Proverbs 20, 24, a man's steps are, are from Yahweh. How then can man understand his way? Your life is not a blank page. You're not the author of your life. You don't get to write your own story. You are a character in God's story. You're a living and breathing character, but a character nonetheless. You don't get to cast yourself. You don't get to reimagine yourself as a character however you wish. You are written, the author has spoken, and you are not at liberty to war against him. You don't move his pen. Your moving is his pen moving. You do not have an eraser big enough, nor ink black enough to overwrite what he is writing. Ernest Henley captured the blasphemous antithesis to Jeremiah's cry here whenever he wrote his poem Invictus, which ends, It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the master, the captain of my soul. The only place that ship will sail are the fiery seas of hell. question, though, is why does Jeremiah rehearse that truth here? How does it bear on his petition? I think it's simply this. He's beginning his prayer as our Lord would later instruct us to. Our Father who art in heaven, acknowledging the transcendence and lordship of our Father, hallowed be your name, but especially this, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He's about to make a petition, but he does so with this acknowledged humility. Your will be done. When we pray, we must never think we are bending God's will to ours. Our will is being bent to His. Yes, our God aims to accomplish His will through our prayers, but you realize this, His accomplishing will, His will through our, 
through our prayers begins when we start praying His will. As He's conformed us to His image. He ordains the means as well as the ends. Our prayers are His will whenever they conform with His will. God is not consulting us on how to write the story. Aren't you glad that's the truth? Aren't you glad that the person next to you isn't altering the the mind and will and desire of God Almighty by His petitions? He's putting His words in our mouth, writing His story, bringing it about. And so it is in such humility that Jeremiah cries out, correct, correct, but in justice, not in anger. Now, ultimately speaking, justice would mean hell for every son of Adam. And in that sense, there's no distinction between his anger and his justice. So then what is Jeremiah asking for here? I think he's calling for justice according to God's covenant. And what he recognizes in this is that judgment according to the terms of the covenant mean judgment. But it also he's calling on God to remember his covenant and act accordingly to what he's promised for his people. Justice would mean chastisement, but justice would also mean that God would not forget His covenant. Remember covenant and justice, correct, yes, but remember mercy as well. You see in this that Jeremiah doesn't protest. He doesn't ask why bemoaning perceived injustice and what they are suffering. He, he doesn't grumble against the rod. He asks for correction, but he asks that in that correction there be mercy. Like David, whenever he prayed in Psalm 6, O oh Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Yahweh, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Yahweh, for my bones are troubled. It was not rebuke. It was not discipline that troubled David there. He didn't say, don't rebuke me. He did not say, don't discipline me. He said, don't rebuke me or discipline me in your wrath. Because if that is what comes against me, I am undone. Or, as we have it here, Jeremiah would be brought to nothing by God's anger. So Jeremiah does not want God's wrath against himself or God's people. He pleads for it on the nations that do not know Yahweh and do not call upon His name. He asks this because they have consumed. They've devoured Jacob. Whenever an author pins a villain, that it does not exempt the villain from the judgment and wrath of the author. Whenever God hits straight licks with crooked sticks as He always does, that doesn't justify the crookedness of the sticks. God has used Babylon to judge Judah, but Babylon didn't do this in obedience to the revealed will of God. She accomplished nothing other than His sovereign will, but not for any reasons of service to the true God. And so He uses her just as He used those who crucified our Lord. 
that in their utmost rebellion against God, they would have him dead. They do nothing but accomplish his will and plan. And likewise with Babylon, this doesn't exempt her in any way. You remember in Amos 3, 2, Yahweh declares of Israel, you only have I known among all the families of the earth. Often use that verse to bring out what it means that God foreknew us, setting his covenant love on us. So I often cite the first part of that passage, but here it is more in full. You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. God's knowing Israel doesn't exempt her from God's punishment. But his not knowing the nations ensures that they will know nothing but his wrath and judgment. They do not call on the name of Yahweh. They do not know Him. They have no salvation. They can expect no grace. So what Jeremiah then is asking here is yes, correct us, but remember mercy and direct your anger not at your people, but direct it at those who are consuming them such that your judgment is is mercy for your people. And so though there's this humility in the first part of this petition, you see how it gives way to such boldness. How can this be? How can Jeremiah be so bold to ask this in light of especially where we've been recently in this section from 8.4 to 10.25 that has so stressed the righteousness and justice of God's wrath against such sinners? How can this be? How can Jeremiah be so bold? I think the answer is because God's words are in his mouth. I don't think it's without reason that these petitions are arranged to follow that refreshing section in chapter 10 verses 1 through 16 that end with Jeremiah explaining, not like these idols, not like these is he who is the portion of Jacob, for he is the one who formed all things. Israel is the tribe of his inheritance, Yahweh of hosts is His name. Yahweh is the portion of His people, and they are His portion. So Jeremiah says, in your correction, in your judgment, have mercy in your judgment by judgment upon those who have consumed your people. And so though Jeremiah 10, 17-25 picks up on the dominant mood of God's wrath and judgment that we've seen throughout this section, the petitions with which this section concludes only make sense in light of that refreshment that came in verses 1 through 16 of this chapter. And so now though, the question that you're left with is, does God hear this cry? Feel the weight of this. God's judgment is coming up on people such that He said He's going to hurl them out of the land and Jeremiah is pleading do not consume us in your anger, but consume those who are devouring us in faithfulness to your covenant. Will God hear this cry? There are not only verses in Jeremiah that serve to answer these two petitions. There are whole sections in Jeremiah that serve to address these two petitions. Consider first... Jeremiah's cry for correction 
but not in anger? Consider the portion of Jeremiah that runs from chapters 30 to chapters 33, known as the Book of Consolation. We've visited that portion many times already. It's a, it's a key text that helps you understanding Jeremiah. It's where we see God speak of the new covenant. And so we could review those verses in chapter 31, verses 31 through 34, or chapter 32, 36 through 41. We could look at those verses concerning the new covenant again and see how they answer this petition. But there's an earlier portion of the book of Consolation that speaks directly to what we've seen in our text this morning. Jeremiah 30, 10 through 17. Then fear not, O Jacob, my servant, declares Yahweh, nor be dismayed, O Israel. For behold, I will save you from far away and your offspring from the land of their captivity. Jacob shall return and have quiet and ease and none shall make him afraid, for I am with you to save you, declares Yahweh. I will make a full end of all the nations among whom I scattered you, but of you I will not make a full end. Do you hear the answer? I will discipline you in just measure. And I will by no means leave you unpunished. For thus says Yahweh, your hurt is incurable. Your wound is grievous. There is none to uphold your cause. No medicine for your wound. No healing for you. All your lovers have forgotten you. They care nothing for you. For I have dealt you the blow of an enemy. The punishment of a merciless foe. Because your guilt is great. Because your sins are flagrant. Why do you cry out over your hurt? Your pain is incurable because your guilt is great, because your sins are flagrant. I have done these things to you. Therefore, all who devour you shall be devoured, and all your foes, every one of them, shall go into captivity. Those who plunder you shall be plundered, and all who prey on you I will make a prey. For I will restore health to you. And your wounds I will heal, declares Yahweh, because they have called you an outcast. It is Zion for whom no one cares, because they've said of you, you're Zion for whom no one cares. For this reason, I will heal you. That's really sufficient, is it not, to answer both of Jeremiah's petitions all by itself. But the book of Consolation does speak specifically to that first petition. Correct us, but not in anger. Concerning the second petition, that His wrath be poured out on those who do not know Yahweh, the book ends with a section that runs from chapter 46 to the end that's known as the Oracle Against the Nations. It's striking that much of what we just read in chapter 30 is rehearsed verbatim in chapter 46, especially that he will not make a full end of Israel, but of those who have oppressed her. But in particular, just consider this one verse, Jeremiah 51.5, you're given a reason for the destruction of Babylon. 
For Israel and Judah have not been forsaken by their God. But the land of the Chaldeans is full of guilt against the Holy One of Israel. You see the contrast? She has not been forsaken. But this pagan land is full of guilt against the Holy One of Israel. Israel. Isn't it striking how he identifies himself in that particular verse? He's the Holy One of Israel who he has not forsaken. But their guilt is great. Now you're just left wondering still though, how can this be? Praise God that it is, but how can this be? How can these sinners receive such mercy from God? It's too simple to say, well, Babylon was defeated, he brought him back into exile. Yes, but there's so much more involved here. Let's return to chapter 30 of Jeremiah and read verse 10 again. Then fear not, O Jacob, my servant, declares Yahweh, nor be dismayed, O Israel, for behold, I will save you from far away and your offspring from the land of their captivity. Then fear not. So something has already been said that serves as a grounds for this reason not to fear. Jeremiah 38 9. It shall come to pass in that day, and it's already been spoken of in that chapter as a day of restoration. It shall come to pass in this day of restoration, declares Yahweh of hosts, that I will break his yoke, that's Babylon's, from off your neck and will burst your bonds and foreigners shall no more make a servant of him. But they shall serve Yahweh their God and David their king, whom I will raise up for them. How can such comfort come to these sinners that they know they will experience just chastisement, yet his anger and wrath will be directed against the enemies of God such that it will mean the salvation of his people. How? God says he will raise up a king. His name is Jesus. How can these things be? How can mercy be shown to such sinners? And the answer is the prophet, priest, and king who God raised up. Can you hear him crying out in the garden? Not my will, but yours be done. Can you hear him crying out as He's bearing the Father's wrath for our sins. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? No wound was ever so grievous, full of curse and bitterness. Isaiah tells us, surely he has borne our griefs. When we did not know how to grieve, he bore them 
truly carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And Yahweh has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jeremiah cried out for the wound of my people is my heart wounded. How much more true is this of our Lord? Jeremiah suffered with God's people. Our Lord suffered for His people. He prayed before He suffered. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you since you have given Him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given Him. And this is eternal life. That they know you. The only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. The Father has glorified the Son. This prayer was heard. And all for whom He suffered. All those who were given to Him by His Father. Every one of them will know Him. They will know Him eternally. They will be brought into the fullness of this joy as God's wrath presses the wicked out of this earth and makes all things new. And He brings us to rest eternally at home with Him, assuring us we will never pack our bags. We will forever be with the Lord, never to be driven from His presence. Or know His wrath. Or even His chastening. For on that day, we too will be made new. Let's pray. Holy Father, thank you for the rich, rich mercy in Christ Jesus our Lord. That to undeserving sinners who should know nothing but your wrath, you gave your Son to suffer in our stead. We praise you that his prayers, his petitions on our behalf are heard. We rejoice, Father, that by your great grace and the sacrifice of Christ, we know you. We'll know you forever.
and will be at home with you one day, never to be driven from your presence. All glory, all honor, all praise be to you, our triune God. Amen.